Hello everyone and welcome back to the World of Sharks podcast, the official podcast of the Save Our Seas Foundation, which as the name suggests, talks all about sharks, their relatives and the oceans. I'm your host Isla and every episode I sit down with a different expert in shark science, conservation, education and storytelling to take you on a deep dive into a different part of the wonderful world of sharks. Now, this episode is probably one of our most requested episodes to date. A lot of you have asked us to cover this species and frankly, I'm not surprised because we are talking about a species of shark that is legendary for so many reasons, not least being the world's longest living vertebrate. We are, of course, talking about Greenland sharks. I am so happy about this because they're one of my favourite species and I know they're a favourite species for a lot of you sitting at home or at least they're kind of, you know, right up there in the list of top 10 most cool species of shark. (laughs) But for those of you who aren't familiar, the Greenland shark is a relatively large species of shark that comes from a family called the Somniocidae. I don't think I'm pronouncing that right, but never mind. They are otherwise known as the sleeper sharks, and as the name might suggest, these sharks really do live life in the slow lane. They have slow swimming speeds in comparison to other species of shark, and are generally thought to have low activity levels. They're they're basically seen to be very kind of slow and sluggish, although this episode might change your mind on that a little bit. They are mainly found in polar and subpolar waters and have unique adaptations suited to a life in the cold. And the Greenland shark really takes this idea of living life slowly to the extreme. In 2016, a team of scientists estimated the age of these animals for the very first time and discovered that their longevity can be measured in centuries. Not tens of years, centuries. That means that there are sharks that exist today, you know, just swimming around the ocean right now, as they do, that were alive at the same time as Shakespeare, which is just insane if you think about it. It's just absolutely mental. And while a lot of their life is still shrouded in mystery, we are finding amazing things out about the Greenland shark and what they get up to across all of those years. And that is what we are covering on the episode today. And we are very, very lucky shark nerds because our guest today is scientist and Greenland shark detective, Dr. Julius Nielsen. Julius has been researching these animals for over a decade. And a lot of what we know about the Greenland shark today comes from the work of Julius and his team. That includes the very cool aging study I mentioned earlier, This was the subject of Julius's PhD and he was the lead author on the publication that came from that study and kind of really took the world by storm. In this episode, we go into depth about just how they did it and just how long they estimate that the Greenland shark can live for. And it's just some really cool science. This study was also part of a project funded by the Save Our Seas Foundation, aptly named Old and Cold, which was led by Peter Bushnell and fun fact is actually one of the longest running projects we funded, running from 2011 to 2016. But their age is not the only thing that Julius has investigated over the years. He has also looked at their reproductive and dietary habits, which has revealed some pretty surprising findings. 
like the fact that Greenland sharks may have hundreds of young, where previously it was thought that they could only give birth to up to 10 pups, and that they possibly aren't as slow and sluggish as some people might think when it comes to food. We talk about all of this and more in the episode. Julius is in the pretty unique position of having seen and worked with many Greenland sharks in the field, and he has some pretty fascinating tales to tell. So we go on some tangents about things like the parasites that live in the eyes of Greenland sharks, Google it, it is pretty weird, and what it was like to release one of the world's oldest teenagers back into the wild. Because there was so much to talk about and, you know, how often do you get the chance to grill an actual Greenland shark expert? This is a little bit of a longer episode than normal, so I would highly recommend getting yourself a snack, maybe a nice coffee or a beverage, and settling in because it is a good one. Consider it an homage to the Greenland shark for whom an hour is just a blip, a mere fraction of that mighty lifespan. All right, without further ado, get ready to meet a 200-year-old shark and let's dive in to our episode. Hello, Julius Nielsen, and welcome to the World of Sharks podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I, as I said before we started recording, I have been looking forward to this episode for a long time because the species we are going to talk about today is, if not my personal favourite species of shark, it's pretty high up there. And I think a lot of our listeners at home will also be equally excited to find out about the Greenland shark. But before we actually learn about them, we're going to learn a little bit about you. And my first question is, I know it's quite difficult for, we ask every single guest this question and every single person always says that it's a difficult question to answer because a lot of the people that we're speaking to have spent quite a lot of time in the ocean. But do you have a particular experience with the ocean that stands out for you as the most memorable? Mm, yeah, well, it definitely is a difficult question because uh, I have spent quite a lot of time on the ocean the past 10 years, 14 years, actually. Uh, so I think I've had many memorable uh, moments, but... Uh, one of the very, very special moments, at least, was actually in relation to Greenland sharks, because when I just finished my PhD, uh, I went in, I, I did that in Copenhagen, Denmark. And then uh, one week later, I went to Norway for doing some final tagging uh, of Greenland sharks, actually. And then for the first time, uh, it was only one week uh, after I defended, but for the first time, we actually caught a Greenland shark that was small enough for me to being able to lift it up myself when we had un unhooked it so that we could get it out into the water. So even though it was a shark that was too small to get a satellite tag on, but it was super nice to be able to lift it out and put it in the water. It was like only maybe one meter and 20 or something like that. So I think that particular moment, it was like, it was, it was a nice experience, but of course, to be able to release the shark like gently, but, but it, it was also, I've thought about it afterwards that it was quite nice, like, 
after finishing my PhD, I, I kind of I was able to 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 lift it myself and 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 release it. So it was also a kind of a symbolic moment for me. So 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 maybe that episode at least comes to my mind now when we are talking about Greenland sharks. But of course, uh, when 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 you're out on the ocean and you're doing field work, then then you see so many amazing things and amazing sunsets and have all these amazing animal encounters. So it's. There's there's not one particular favorite moment I think, but uh... yeah, I mean I, I I imagine you've had so many incredible experiences, especially kind of up in the Arctic and just yeah I I imagine you've seen some pretty pretty cool stuff. Um, but yeah, like defending de- defending your thesis and then <laughs> it's a very poetic thing to then be able to release that <laughs> exactly. But it is uh, it is a true story. It's not just something I I am coming up with. It it is actually it is actually true. <laughs> oh, I believe you. I believe you because I've I've seen um I don't know if they're your videos, but I've I've seen some of the videos that we've got in the Save Our Seas library. And there's one where you release a very large Greenland shark. We'll kind of get on to how big they get in a, in a little bit. But there's one where you release a very large Greenland shark and you kind of got it like held up against the side of the boat and I think there's sort of like a, a, a almost like it looks like a chain that kind of goes to their mouth is that yeah 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 the, that's the chain from mm. from the hook like we have a hook we have a chain and then the chain is attached to a rope when we are catching them yeah but then there's there's also one where there, where there's a much smaller shark that someone's actually like kind of physically holding oh, okay as well. i don't, I don't yeah, know if that's okay. the same that's yeah, the same moment maybe 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 that actually is i don't know if i ever sent that to uh to uh, save our seas maybe i did but yeah <laughs> I can at least send it to you so you can see the picture yes. if you want to. There is a picture <laughs> of uh, of me smiling and the shark being yeah <laughs> put back in the water. <laughs> I hope you have that frame somewhere in your office. It is. It is. It is somewhere. <laughs> it is somewhere. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Um. But so that's kind of you at the end of your PhD. But how did you come? How well? How did sharks come into your life in the first place? And then how did you come on to study Greenland sharks? It was back in 2009. I, I was a biology student at the University of Copenhagen. And I had this uh, student job in Greenland with the Greenland Institute of Natural Resources. And they had this research vessel during in, in the summer and autumn time. It was in different parts of Greenland monitoring commercial fish and shrimp stocks. And I was lucky to get on board to get a job to measure shrimps and fish and uh, ID them and, and all of this when, whenever the, the big nets were coming in. In the first year I went, I was told that uh, there was another cruise that the one I was participating in, that uh, there was a cruise where they were catching Greenland sharks. And at that time I had never heard about Greenland shark, but I heard about that they caught these enormous sharks like three four meters I, I was just like wow i've never heard about them and 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 then the next year uh, i just wanted to go on that particular cruise in that particular area where they are most commonly caught to see them and and then we were lucky on that trip and we did get a couple and they were just enormously big i think the biggest was like four and a half meter and i think we waited to about a one one thousand kilo or something like that 
so that was in 2010 when I saw my first Greenland shark. I was just super amazed by it. But to be honest, it was not because I've, I felt this strong connection that I had to do all these things now with this animal. But it was just like one of many animals that I saw those years that I was fascinated about. But then some years later, maybe it was the year after or two years after, I had a lecture at the University of Copenhagen during my education to become a biologist with um, uh, a professor called uh, John Flink Stephenson. And he was talking about Greenland sharks and the work that he was doing and how interesting they were. And uh, he was working, among other things, with uh, aging the Greenland sharks. And uh, he had this location up in, uh, in, in an area around somewhere in Greenland called uh, Disco Island. Uh, where there is an, uh, a research station where he had been catching sharks and uh, he, had, he he was working on, on trying to figure out their age because there, yeah, I guess we will talk more about that later, but there was these things that they were like supposedly super old, but you can't really use any conventional age methods. So he was telling this entire story to the class and I've, I of course was listening very carefully because I had seen one of these sharks and then as he went on, he he said that the, the sharks he was catching was like, I don't know if it were two and a half meter or three meters or something like that. But he said, well, he really wanted some of the, the big ones because they were presumably some of the older sharks. And then I raised my hand from the back line in the classroom. And then I said that uh, like last year or the year before, I had actually seen one that was four and a half meter. And, and he was like, immediately, of course, he was interested. And he was like, oh my God. And we need to talk uh, after that to, to, to hear more about it. Then we had many meetings and talks and, and, and so on. And then some years later, I was ready to do my master project. And then John gave me the opportunity to work on this aging study that he had, had been working on uh, for some time at that point. And uh, yeah, and then it was first my master. And then after my master project, we were like, we could see some of the results that they were seemed to be old, but it needed more. Uh, digging so so the master project then became a phd project and um, yeah and he and here we are yeah and here we are yeah exactly yeah but when when you first saw that green that greenland shark for the first time on your cruise before you kind of even you know uh, learnt about them in the lecture did you actually know kind of anything like anything about them did you know like kind of how how old they can get or it's just this just the size no, no one, no one knew anything about that before we came up with some uh, numbers for it. But I remember that I was told from someone, I don't remember who, but someone said something that they are growing super slowly. I remember someone on the boat saying that. So it was probably one of the biologists who knew because there is this old study, which is more than 50 years old, that John also mentioned in his lecture. And it's also something that we mentioned in the age study that we did. But there was a Danish biologist who kind of started and or established the idea that Greenland sharks are probably very old animals or capable of getting very old. But he was tagging sharks in Greenland to see how they were growing. He caught the sharks and he measured their length and then he put uh, a little tag on so that if it was being recaptured, then it could be measured again. So he went on several years trying to catch the same sharks again, but he never managed actually to catch any sharks himself. His sharks were caught all over Greenland, but by by fishermen catching them randomly. And, and so he got reports of recaptures, but if you have to, if, if you are to measure the length of a Greenland shark, you have to be super, super accurate. It's almost impossible, even when they are on a boat deck or when they are on land. If it's a three, four meter long fish, it's super, super difficult to measure the length exactly. And if you just like 
move the tail a little bit in uh, one direction, it can it can change uh, 10 or 15 or 20 centimeters in the final reading. So for the numbers on the links that he got like like 50 years ago that this Danish scientist got in, got back, it was like untrustworthy because some of them had got like one meter longer in uh, one year and and some of them had gotten a half a meter shorter in two years or whatever and and he just like he mentioned in this study or this uh, paper that he did back then that got a lot of untrustworthy information except from one shark that was measured by a close colleague of him who took it up on land and measured it accurately and and that shark had grown from 262 centimeters to 270 centimeters that was eight centimeters in 16 years he, he did not report if it was a male or a female but if it was a female it would be a teenager if it was a male it would be a male that has potentially just read the adult life stage so so it was not a shark of maximum size at all and and he didn't conclude back then and say well then they are most uh, likely super old but he said they must grow very very slow and since they get up to more than four or five meters then those animals must also be very very uh... so so that that story was i was i was told that when we caught the shark so I had an idea that they were capable of getting uh, getting very old but but not in any uh, not not anything more than that and and it was first when John mentioned it that it kind of came back to my mind oh yeah that was that was also interesting about these sharks but but when I saw them I was just like it was just like all the other things I saw in those years for the first time in my life uh, killer whales fin whales all these many different uh, fish uh, spiny lumpsuckers small things and large things everything was just interesting when you are a young biologist and and you and you and you see things coming from the deep uh, for the first time yeah well not many people can say that they've seen they've, they've seen a greenland shark for one thing um you know there's only there's very few people around the world that have um and also they the only, they look like they take a long time <laughs> to grow they look they look like ancient like really and i mean i know a lot of sharks kind of you could say the same thing about but greenland sharks really do look like ancient beings <laughs> from from like another time or at least they do to me yeah, anyway yeah yeah they do they do look a little bit old i i agree First, I kind of wanted to go into the the basics of Greenland sharks. We're kind of already talking about it a little bit, but they come they come from the sleeper shark family, which is a fantastically named family of sharks. Um, I'm gonna butcher this. The Latin name is Somniocidae. For someone who is unfamiliar with the Greenland shark, for example, like how how would you describe them? Well, I don't share that, but I can say that most people when they see them say that they're ugly Aww. and they say that they, they they are disappointed and and they don't think they look like a shark who are those people <laughs> that's very rude yeah 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 but many people i have been uh, sailing with whenever we are catching them as a bycatch and they're like oh they're they're not that they they, they expect this um, apex predator uh, great white shark when, when whenever they whenever right. they think about a big shark i guess but but if you are to describe a greenland shark they're often they're often very big it's it's quite rare to see them smaller than two meters 
when you catch them, they are also very slow and docile in their movements. Uh, when they're laying on a troll deck, they, 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 sometimes you can actually be in doubt whether they are alive at all. And that, that's also when you catch them on a long line, not just on, in a troll. And so their movements are super slow, and then they, they have very small eyes, actually. They have also very small gill openings, and they're kind of quite blobby, or their body structure is not as hard. So whenever they're lying on a deck, they always tend to kind of lay upside down with their belly. And <laughs> and then if they don't really move a lot, then they just roll in the waves a little bit back and forth, and they're big and... And, and often also a little bit chubby. But then when you see them in the water uh, and when you release them and put them back in and if you put a GoPro down and you can see them swim away, then it's a completely different animal. Well, they're, they're still slow and docile, but uh, they look better in water than they do on a, on a boat deck. Now I'm mentioning this with a boat deck because the most Greenland sharks I have seen, well, maybe I have also seen quite a few on a long line, but whenever people have seen Greenland sharks in general, the, the few people who has seen them, that is when they are caught as bycatch in either in scientific surveys as we are doing uh, or on board a commercial trawler uh, because that is that is where you normally encounter a Greenland shark. Yeah, because they're, they're a deep water species mainly, right? So you're not going to easily come across them when you're, when you're swimming. No, no, you will never come across them when you're... Uh, un, unless you're swimming like in the Arctic near floating whale carcass or something like that, or if there is some hunters who are butchering a seal or cutting up a whale in there, then there are many reports of the sharks coming up. I've never seen it myself. I really want to, but I haven't. Um, and uh, but uh, But otherwise, they are like like a deep sea of course one of the one of the, now i think i'm forgetting one of the most uh, characteristic things about the greenland sharks besides that they are often very big and that they have small eyes and they're grayish and and uh, docile then then they have this parasite on their eye which is uh, super common for them to have they don't always have it uh, but i think it's like it it depends a little bit on what region you are in but I think it's like 99% or something of them has either one parasite on one eye or the other eye or on both eyes, but never more than one. I have, I don't know how many exactly I've seen, maybe 250 or something I've seen. And I have one shark that once had two parasites on the same eye, but uh, but it is it, so it's it was one out of 250 maybe so 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 you need to see a lot of the green and sharks to see that so it's definitely not often but the parasite that's uh that's super yeah. common for them it, to have. it looks so bizarre because i was um because i've seen it in some of the videos that i've seen obviously i've never seen a greenland shark but in 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 real life but i've seen it on some of the videos and it, it looks like it's got like a piece of string like hanging from the, the middle of its eye or something really bizarre yeah it is actually it's it's like a, this white white worm uh hanging from a from its eye it's it's not a worm it's a copepod uh it's a copepod parasite but but it, it looks like a worm um uh that is that is hanging hanging from the cornea of the eye do we know what they're doing sorry i'm going a little bit off topic but do we know what they're doing while they're on the eye well, they are just sitting there and, and uh, they are growing. The parasites are growing and then they get produce eggs. And when they have produced their eggs, then they fall off the shark again. And then a new parasite will come on the, on the sharks. When, when you look at their eyes, uh, then you can, you can see many scar tissues from previous infections. And, and, and one of the 
great myth or, or like like one of the, the things that you can read many places is that the Greenland sharks are blind due to this parasite. But I don't share that opinion at all, actually. I don't necessarily think that they are, have a good vision, but for the sharks that I've seen, because I expected, I had also read the papers on this, like that they are producing this scar tissue and that the scar tissue then at some point gets so severe that the shark cannot look anymore. And then, of course, if that was the case, uh, which I believed initially when I started working with the sharks, I would expect that w- the bigger and the older the sharks you would we would get, the more scar tissue they would have. But that was just not the case at all. It was always kind of the same level of infection you would see. You would always see marks from previous infections but what you could also see was actually that some marks were very white and like very like uh, newly fresh scar tissue but you could actually also see previous marks that was disappearing that was getting transparent again so i'm i'm absolutely convinced that the greenland shark can actually regenerate its own cornea yeah so so um i i I don't think they're visual hunters but i just i'm not buying that the parasite causes blindness uh because I, I believe that they are they are there and they may not they may not improve the vision but but I, I don't think they make them blind. Interesting. Yeah. So not totally blind, but also not, you know, perfect twenty twenty vision either. But like you said, like why why would you need it if you live in do we know how deep they can go? Well, no, we don't know how deep they can go because they can most likely go deeper than what we know currently. But the deepest record is uh, 2.9 kilometers and that was a long line deployed at that depth and 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 i imagine if you deployed some long lines in some certain areas at uh, 3.1 3.5 well i think you would get a greenland shark also at some point they are not commonly below 1000 meter or at least below 1500 meters so so they 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 are more commonly in more shallow waters uh, but they are capable of going going uh, to greater depths that's insane even even past 1000 meters is is just insane to comprehend and to think about incredible absolutely incredible um but one thing i did want to talk about um before we kind of get on to their sort of reproductive biology and their feeding habits um is First talk about we mentioned that they can they can live for for a very long time and as you mentioned you were part of the first team of scientists to discover estimate just kind of how old they can get. I also want to talk about kind of how you did this but first of all what did you estimate could potentially be their maximum lifespan? I know that you looked at I think was it was it 12 maybe 12 individuals maybe 13? individual sharks i think i think it was uh 28 28 oh i'm completely yeah. off <laughs> i did read the paper not, not completely paper. not not completely <laughs> off but um i think it was i think it was now uh I'm, yeah i don't know it's a long time since i read it. you've probably seen it uh yeah I did read it. I didn't read it that long ago, but but you would know it much better than I do. I think um, I think it was twenty eight. I think it was twenty eight. Yeah. 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 But I know there's there was also a big uh, a, a big range of ages that you found kind of within that. So yeah. what what yeah. was the kind of maximum of that range? The maximum the the oldest shark uh, that we uh, came across, or that we the the the, the highest 
age estimate that we produced when we did this study was uh, a shark that we estimated to be somewhere between 270 and 512 years old. The the statistical result you can say or or the or the, the, the model that we used produced uh, it, well this ranged between 272 and and uh, 512 that that range represents the 95% probability and 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 the most likely in that range is around 400 years but actually I'm not that keen of of exactly that because people tend to be very focused on that we then f came up with that they were 400 years old um, or even 500 sometimes I I often see that too but but if you want to make a one-liner describing how old Greenland sharks are, you should say at least 272, because then you have the entire 99 and 95% of probability. And then, of course, you also need to take into account that we are also saying that we estimate. Estimate is also different from determinate. And it's not a coincidence that we use that word because it's a, it's a statistical model. And to be honest, it's not as, it's not as certain as people expect, but it is still the best we can produce at this point with the methods that we applied. And they're definitely not ideal, but, but it's the best at this point. And, and, and there's no doubt with the results that we produced that that Greenland sharks are capable of getting very very old and that their longevity is is measured in centuries yeah so it's it's pretty much safe to say that they they can be centuries old you know the title of the paper that was published back then in my phd and that was published in science is centuries of longevity revealed by uh, Eileen's radiocarbon dating. And that is not, it's not a coincidence that we choose these words because that is kind of, that's also how when I'm writing a scientific paper myself and uh, about the Greenland sharks, of course I'm mentioning the age, but I'm never mentioning 400 years or 500 years and, and because it doesn't really matter. The point is they are super old. They live, they can, they can be hundreds of years old and, and, and uh, it's just us humans who kind of get obsessed with the with the number and it's probably going to be your next question but I'm just going to jump right to it because the thing is the reason we have applied this method which is radiocarbon dating is that conventional techniques for determining the age of fish do not apply on Greenland sharks so normally if you had like a teleost fish or bony fish which could be a salmon a grouper uh, a pike or an eel, you would take the ortholiths or the ear stones from their head and you would look at those uh, at those in a microscope and then you could count the growth rings and see exactly how many summers and how many winters they had been alive. Just as you would do in a, if you cut over a tree and count the growth rings. But for all sharks, sharks and rays, they don't have these structures and therefore it's more difficult in general to determine the age of any shark or ray species or skate species for that matter. For sharks and rays, you have other techniques that can be used, but it depends on the species, which techniques you're using. And if you take, for example, a white shark, they have a calcified cartilage skeleton where you can take the vertebra and then you can actually count some growth rings and you can produce some age estimates on how old they are or at least for some time periods that they have been alive. Other shark species, they have might have a spine. Uh, there's like spiny dogfish that has a spine and you can 
you can take that spine out and then you can make a transect of it and you can also see how many summer and winters that this individual has been alive. But for the Greenland shark, the case is it's a very soft shark. It doesn't have any calcified cartilage skeleton. It doesn't have any spines. Of course, the teeth are hard, but the teeth are replaced all the time for a shark. So you cannot, there are no techniques uh, available for using, at least not what I'm aware of, where you can use teeth. The, the thing is, for Greenland sharks, there are just no methods that apply for any other species of shark that can be used on Greenland sharks. Therefore, for decades, people have just wondered and looked at those uh, numbers from let the, that Danish uh, scientist called uh, Hansen, who reported these um, slow growth rates or slow growth increments, and they have just wondered and said, okay, Greenland sharks are most likely super old, but there are no methods to to uh, to to investigate this any further but what we did was that we got inspired or john got inspired together with he was working together at that time with uh, a guy called jan heinemeyer they had this idea that you could take the eye of the shark if you take the eye and you take out the islands then the islands is composed by very very uh, unique material uh, and that's actually the same whether it's a parrot if it's an elephant or if it is a Greenland shark because if you take out the islands it's made out of biological glass I mean if you take the eye out if you cut it open you can take out the the, the islands which is this little glass like structure like a, a ball uh, inside and if you take that it's only growing on the surface and because the proteins that are inside of it are called crystalline proteins. It's also called biological glass, but they have a unique feature, which is that they're metabolically inactive, meaning that as when they are being formed, they don't change anymore. There's no blood transfer or anything to it. And that feature is the same for all animals that has an islands. So the islands is only growing on the surface and it grows continuously. The older the animal gets, the more and more, the, high, the, the larger the islands in theory gets. But if we take out the islands, we can remove all the layers that has been added over the animal's lifetime. And in the very center of the islands, if we take those crystalline proteins or that biological glass, those proteins has not changed the entire life of the shark. I'm just going to describe with a little more words just to make it completely clear what we did and how it works. But, but the structure of the islands is basically like an onion. So imagine you have, uh, from a small shark, you have a small onion. From a very big shark, you have a very big onion. And from a medium shark, you have a medium-sized onion. So for the big shark, we take out the islands and then we remove all the layers until we get to the very center. Because that was the islands when the shark was approximately zero years old. And we do the same thing from the medium shark and from the small shark. So for all of the sharks, we isolate the tissue that represents H0 of the individual or when it was when it was approximately zero years old. Um, and that tissue, we analyzed to see how old is that tissue. And for that, we used radiocarbon dating. That was two methods, uh, two different methods of radiocarbon dating. The first one is called bomb radiocarbon dating. And the second one is called like, that's more traditional radiocarbon dating. So for the first one, which is bomb radiocarbon, it's it's fairly simple because you just measure the content, the, 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 the radioactive level, and you can 
from that you can see whether it has been born before or after a very distinct event that occurred in 1955, 56, 57, which was the testing of the thermonuclear weapons in the Pacific Ocean. And for that to make sense, I have to again go back to imagine that you have a tree that, that is 100 years old, that it was planted in 1900. It grew for 100 years and then you cut it over in year 2000. If you then measured the radiocarbon content in each of the growth rings of this tree, you would see that up until 1955, maybe 1956 or 1957, you would have fairly low levels, but then you have a very sharp increase in radiocarbon. Um, and then it would gradually decrease towards uh, modern time. That is called the bomb pulse. And that pulse has been described in everywhere that you have looked in all chronologies that has been made, where you have like in corals, in 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 many different fish species, in many in 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 whales and, and, and trees all over the world, you have seen this spike. It's just that's just that is just insane to think about because like it, it, it we talk about our impact on the planet. But like when you kind of when you see it like that <laughs> and you see that it's sort of every, you know, potentially every living thing that was around during this time has this sort of evidence of something that humans did at that one point in time. It's just crazy. Exactly. Actually, those bombs that was blown up in the in the mid 1950s, it, it, it is not the. It's it's not the um, atomic bombs over Japan, but it's it's the testing of thermonuclear weapons. That's uh, important to distinguish between those. But they was they were basically the largest chemical tagging experiment that has ever been carried out because every living creature on Earth incorporated elevated radiocarbon levels uh, due to this event, but not to a degree where. Obviously, we know. No, it's it's not that it it was not so that people or, or animals or creatures died from it, but it was just levels that you can detect uh, many years later when you are then doing a chronology. So, in in the case for the Greenland sharks, the first analysis that we did was to see okay, what are the levels in these twenty eight different sharks? And I have been asked many times, like, okay, the day that you find out that the Greenland sharks were super old and that this oldest shark was two, three, four, five hundred years old. How was it and how did you celebrate it and, and what feeling did you have? And, and and the truth is the most the biggest moment for, for us who did this study was when we were looking at those numbers and we saw that it was only the very smallest sharks that actually were affected by the bombs, whereas all the sharks from 2.2 meters or larger, they were not affected, meaning they would have to be older than 50 years. Whereas the sharks that we have that were smaller than 2.2 meters, they were younger than two, uh, 50 years. And those 28 sharks we had, it was only females. And the females, they get mature around four meters. So 2.2, it's just a teenager, right? It, it's not even sexually mature. So at that point, we were looking at each other and that was during my master, but we saw this the first time, and we were like, "Jesus Christ, the 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 teenagers are actually older than fifty years because the four meter sharks must be much much older, and that's when they start to get sexually mature, 
And then, of course, they also have to have a life where they are sexually uh, sexually mature so that they, otherwise it, it doesn't make any sense. But that was the time where we were like, wow. But it was not like we were we were like super confident and just jumping around and saying, oh my God, this is going to be such an amazing story. Because we, 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 we met just ourselves with the disbelief and like, oh my, what have we done wrong here? And, and, and also we said, we need more sharks. And I, and I guess that's that's what happens when you're sort of um, uh, in, in a field where there are so many mysteries, you know, hanging around this animal, and there's so it's it's so difficult to to access them in the first place, like you said, or the at least the size that you need. Um, and I think a lot of people misconstrue science as, you know, we are finding definitive answers to things. Um, a lot of the time we don't actually, you know, a scientific paper, if you read them, they never say unless they have like statistical reasoning to say it, you know, you very rare to find a paper that is like, this is this, and this is the way that it is. It's always, this could be this, but we need more data to, you know, make this more certain. So, you know, um, but, but like we were talking about earlier, it's, it's just, it's just added weight to the, the argument that Greenland sharks do live for a very long time. Another part of your research, which I really wanted to get onto, um, was about what they actually do with that long life. We kind of touched on it there. <laughs> they eat, they eat slowly. That's an easy question. Next. <laughs> they live life in the slow lane. <laughs> they eat and reproduce when they're very old. Yeah. 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 But what what do we actually, because you, you, you published research in 2020 because you looked at the reproductive biology, which I just think is so incredibly fascinating. And I wondered if you could tell us, like, what did you find? And what do we actually know? Or, or what do we think we know about their uh, reproductive habits? Yeah. Well, uh, the the thing which is actually it's it's very good that we are talking about these things because then I can at first mention a very important point. When we are doing this with the sharks, people can also sometimes think, "Oh my God, did you kill all these sharks just for their eyes and 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 all of this?" But the sharks that we that we used for these age investigations, for example, they were caught like accidental. Bycatch, and of course, the age was the main uh, reason for for collecting the samples. But what what I did was I collected everything I could from the sharks. So I looked in their stomachs, I looked at their reproductive organs. I've also shared lots of different tissues with colleagues around the world to get as much out of each animal. And one of the things that at some point it was quite late in the process actually, but suddenly we had a shark which had very very large ovaries we we counted 649 over like eggs unfertilized eggs inside her ovary and each egg was between five and six centimeters in diameter so when we cut that open it was like oh my god what is what is going on here because again if you look in the literature you can find that there has only been one observation of a greenland shark that was pregnant which was caught 70 years ago and it was some fishermen who caught it and they cut it open and there were fetuses inside of her and they saved like one fetus or two fetus and took it home with them, gave it to one scientist who gave it to some other scientist 
who then wrote an article about it. And we know that these fetuses, they were Greenland sharks. There is a picture of them. They did some very careful measurements and it was definitely Greenland sharks that they caught. But there were only 10 fetuses in total. Ever since you can read that Greenland sharks get 10 pups or up to 10 pups or get few pups or at least something like that based on this one observation. But then when we saw these 649 eggs and on another occasion we saw 455 eggs the same size, I was I started to think about why would you make that many eggs only to have 10 pups. To me there was just a giant mismatch in terms of what was going on here. Then I started to dig into the reproductive biology. I started to go through all of my data and then I started to describe as much as I could from the limited uh, sample sizes as I had because as as with the aging, normally when you're describing the reproductive biology of a fish, you have thousands of specimens. We don't have that in this case. We had hundreds. But what we also had was most of the sharks were in the same reproductive stage, immature females or immature males, most of them. Then the very biggest ones, they could be adult females, but they were not likely, they, most of them, they didn't have these big ovaries and they were never pregnant. Sometimes we could see that they had given birth previously, but, but they had rather small ovaries that was not so developed. But then we had these two observations and then I was has really been digging into the literature to find out, okay, I have seen the reproductive cycle parts of this cycle that we are that we are seeing but there are other species closely related species like other in in the same order or in the same family where the reproductive biology is very well described so I was like thinking okay what can I learn from closely related species and how much do all these closely related well described species how much do they differ from each other and if five other species that are in close relation have some common traits, it's also likely that those traits can be applied to the Greenland shark. So one of the common traits was that for the ones that produced eggs the same size and the, the those eggs of the same size would grow and grow and grow, they would also fertilize approximately the same or have the same amount of fertilize or fetuses in the ovaries meaning that maybe that was a little bit difficult way to to explain it but it actually showed that all closely related species the the number of eggs they were producing corresponded to the number of pups many people know that some sharks or many some people actually think it's all sharks but it's a very famous like the sand tiger shark that the fetuses are capable of eating each other uh, inside the womb of the female but that is kind of that applies for certain groups of sharks for the group that greenland shark belongs to which is quite well investigated in terms of the reproductive biology this is not a feature unless that the greenland shark stands out from all other sharks of the same order then the most simple explanation to the observation of 649 large same sized eggs would be that the majority maybe not all of them but that the majority of them will be fertilized during the same pregnancy and that she will then deliver birth to hundreds of pups rather than just 10 pups Uh, that is to me the most 
simple explanation because the alternative explanation would be that she produces as the only species in her group or in her order that she would produce large uniform over but only fertilize a number of them and then she would then reabsorb all the eggs herself again and that would just not make any biological sense at least as i see it it would be very weird that she produced that many some people then also challenged me and said oh but can it be that some of the eggs are for one pregnancy and some of the eggs are for another pregnancy but for those sharks that are producing eggs at the same time for several pregnancies then you can see that the eggs have different sizes so the batch that has the same size they go into the uterus upon fertilization and since she had 649 that had the same size or and another one had uh, 455 uh, eggs of the same size and then of course you can say well but what about what about the tin pups back then in the in 1950s i was digging into the literature you know i did a phd so that was basically my job was to be a not a pet detective but the animal detective greenland shark detective in this case and actually what what we came up with was that the study that was made and described those tin pups as i said it was it was not the scientist that got it so there were some fishermen who caught it who delivered it to one scientist who gave it to another scientist and they described it without mentioning the middle link they just said we have these this this pup that was tin and then they described it that was fine but i found a description made by the guy who actually received them because he made a book and he said that the fishermen who caught them were greenland shark fisher fishermen they were targeting greenland sharks meaning it was not a troll of some kind it was not a gillnet it was a long line that had been deployed in offshore waters all of this information was available in this in this guy's book that was important information because nowadays if you were to catch a pregnant female on a long line and she had pups inside of her you would expect that the female can evacuate her uterus if she is in danger because that's a very common feature among all sharks it's commonly seen that when the female when the pregnant female is in a life threatening situation she gives birth and that has been described for many species and i've seen it myself also for other species not for greenland sharks but i've seen it for other species being caught and then the 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 female just suddenly she just starts to give birth even though that she might actually either be dead herself or dying or out of water so a greenland shark that has been on a long line that was pregnant and we don't know how long time she was at the long line back in the 1950s but it's definitely certain that they did not deploy the long line for just one hour or two hours because when you do this you deploy a long line for at least 24 hours or 12 hours or so since that this pregnant female with tin pups was actually sitting on a long line then you cannot use her fecundity number for anything to me the most simple explanation here is just that the the greenland shark might be a fantastic animal and mysterious and all this but it is related to other shark species and it, there is also order in nature right if they have that many large over well then it's also likely that they can fertilize the majority 
just like all other closely related species. And then when you have that, they are super old and and uh, live for hundreds of years. And uh, as we didn't mention, our one of our aging results was also that the females are older than 100 years when when they reach sexual maturation. So of course, if you if you are older than 100 years and you only produce 10 pups per pregnancy. Then there is a lot of conservation warning lights, yeah, which is red flags. There's red flags everywhere, uh-huh. and 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 I think it's absolutely fair that there is red flags, but it shouldn't be due to the fecundity because I don't share the perception that Greenland sharks has a low fecundity. I think they have a very high fecundity. Right, I have so many so many thoughts on this because this is the this is the part of things that surprise me the most. Firstly, I am going to introduce you now as Greenland Shark Detective. I do think that should be <laughs> your official job title. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's suitable actually. To be honest, <laughs> that's me. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> you need yeah. like a little badge. <laughs> um, but se- secondly, that was one of the things that really did surprise me when I was um, reading through your papers and researching this episode. And I also fell into the camp of believing that. Not only Greenland sharks, but I kind of had the the thought that similar species of shark like that, you know, had a very low fecundity. You know, when you hear slow to reproduce, you imagine in your head as well, you know, like small litter size, large young. And it was actually we had another podcast episode um, with Britt Fenucci, who's the who's a deep sea shark expert. And she was talking about the white-tailed dogfish. Oh, and yeah. they had a very yeah. similar yeah. experience where they found a pregnant, uh, gravid female And I think, I believe she said it had 59 eggs or young. That absolutely blew my mind because, you know, obviously that as a strategy could potentially make sense. It's just one that you just don't associate with that kind of species. And the Greenland shark was the the same. And I just think it's, it's completely crazy. I didn't actually know that many species of shark actually, do you say, eject the uterus or kind of like kind of effectively do that. Yeah, no, they they, they 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 just give birth. They just give birth to fetuses when they are in a life-threatening situation, and 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 actually last year, uh, I went again. I, I I went on a specific survey in Greenland because I knew that we were getting black dogfish in this area that were pregnant because I wanted to document uh, this exactly uh, this exact thing or phenomenon because what what I saw was we we when we got the pregnant females it was the ones where the pups they could still have a very large yolk sac but the ones that gave birth they 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 would have pups coming out that was capable of swimming that themselves so they kind of had a chance but the ones where the pups were not moving uh, or like not very alive they would not automatically give birth so i think that the female whenever there is like a chance that the pups can survive then they will uh, do this in a life-threatening uh, Shark- situation sharks are just the coolest <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah exactly but we've yeah. we've kind of we talked about I, I've just lost my mind uh, over the whole reproductive yes, biology sorry. thing. I'm no. also just, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's so cool. Sharks are very, very cool. Greenland sharks, especially yes. very cool. Um, but you've also studied your feeding habits and I don't want to kind of leave leave that out of the podcast episode um, because there's quite a, a common, I think it's a misconception maybe, but there's quite a common idea that they're not very active hunters. You know, they're quite lazy and possibly scaven scavengers so is there any truth to this you know what what do we know about what they what they eat we definitely know 
that they're scavengers. There's no doubt that they're scavengers. There's absolutely no doubt that the Greenland shark would scavenge whenever it's it gets the opportunity because it's an easy meal and you don't spend any energy on it. But that being said, there is also a belief that they are capable of active hunting, even though as slow as they are. And when you catch a Greenland shark, I must say, for all the Greenland sharks I've seen, 99.9% of the times I have seen an animal where I thought to myself, no way that they would be capable of catching a fast swimming fish or a seal for that matter that was fully alive or a whale uh, because they are super slow and docile. But there are ways of catching animals even though that you are not faster than them. It doesn't have to be like a cheetah running uh, and you have to uh, swim faster than the seal to catch it. There are other ways. Um, so I know that there are some Norwegian scientists who did a lot of studies in, in Svalbard. These scientists are mainly working with seals and um, they know a lot about seals. And they said that seals, when they're sleeping in water, then you can actually approach them super easily. And, and you can almost touch them when they're sleeping in the water to avoid polar bears. And they imagine that the Greenland shark, well, you can either swim faster than your prey or you can sneak up upon your prey. And if you're super slow, and you have a sleeping seal, it might just be possible for the shark to make some kind of lethal wound or whatever on the seal that then might swim away and then the shark might find it later or whatever. That's that's like one hypothesis and I definitely think that's possible. I, I have seen many seals or found many seals inside the stomachs of them where I, I couldn't see any signs of the seal being shot or being, have, being dead before being captured. But of course, I don't know. But what these Norwegian scientists also mentioned and which I fully support is that whenever they saw animals like seals and fish that were freshly ingested, they would sometime, but not always, also find scavenging fauna in association with it. So the idea is if you have a seal lying on the ocean floor or a cut lying on the ocean floor. There would be brittle stars, there would be amphipods, there would be snails that was has also found this animal. And and then if a shark came along and picked up the scents and ingested it and everything just went in, then it would also suck in amphipods, snails and brittle stars. And I have also seen many snails and amphipods and brittle stars and that's not because uh, a 4 meter Greenland shark is not eating snails, it's eating much larger prey. But of course if it is, is feeding on a carcass that would come into its stomach also. But I have seen many many cases also where I had freshly ingested seals, freshly ingested fish and there were no such things around of this scavenging fauna. So one of the arguments is, and it's kind of, it's not a direct observation, but it's kind of a secondary uh, uh, argument, or I don't know how to, to, to say it, but it's like supporting that it must be capable of catching uh, something which is alive, because otherwise there would be much more of this scavenging fauna inside of its of its uh, of its stomach. But again, when you see a Greenland shark and when you catch it in a troll or a long line, it is very difficult to imagine because they are so slow. If you don't know any better, you would think that they are dead. That being said, I have I have at one time caught a Greenland shark on a fishing rod. 
uh, and it was a big shark. It was uh, it was four meter long, estimated six hundred kilos, and when when I hooked the shark and kind of like tightened the line, then for the first five minutes, because I thought I was just wheeling in a Greenland shark as I knew it from the long lines and from the trolls, but the first five minutes it was nothing like I knew, because I was just fighting not to be dragged into the water because I had the fishing rod attached to me. So I was just with my arms and my legs just pushing against the reeling of the boat not to be dragged into the water. It was much more powerful than I had ever imagined. But then slowly it turned into a normal Greenland shark. And I mean normal in terms of what I was used to see with slow movements where they can roll and it then it rolls around and you can feel that it's rolling. And so it at the end it was a normal Greenland shark, but I never forget those first five minutes. And then I realized, okay, the majority of Greenland sharks, so whenever people are seeing a Greenland shark and seeing these slow animals, it's always in a troll or it's always from a long line. And and there has also been some studies where they put an accelerometer on Greenland sharks, but they were also caught on a long line, meaning that they were exhausted animals. And then they measured how fast they were swimming for the next uh, 12 hours. And and if you are a shark that is uh, 100 years old, uh, or, or you're living for the next 100 years or 200 years, and you're being caught one day in a long line, who says that you will just go out three hours later and 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 perform your 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 best and catch a seal? You can wait a week, you can wait two weeks, you can wait a month. So just because you have measurements of a shark twelve hours after it has been caught on a long line, it doesn't mean that you have seen the potential of what the Greenland shark is capable of. That that being said, I I I don't think they are swimming fast, but I definitely think they can swim faster than what we normally see when they are at the surface yeah we're we're not seeing like the like we discussed like at the beginning of the podcast we're we're only kind of seeing them we're not seeing their entire life no. we're, we're seeing a very very small snapshot of it it might be that they can do both so they can either be you know they can take advantage of a carcass that's that's appeared or they can actively hunt when they need to yeah exactly exactly just like just like all other predators and then one of the last things that that i also think is very important to mention here is that actually in greenland when we are doing this troll survey as i mentioned to you sometimes now it's it's actually quite common that when we are fishing inside a big school of fish like where we are getting lots of cuts sometimes we are finding those schools with uh, the acoustic equipment if we want to do some tagging so we know okay here there is a high density of cut and then we put down the net and then we maybe catch two, three, four hundred kilos of cut, maybe a thousand kilos of cut. On those occasions, we actually also quite often get big Greenland sharks and they are filled up with cut and not not just cut that has been stuffed down their mouth while they were in the net, but we can see that they are, they, 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 it's like all digestive stages of cut. So, so we know that the Greenland sharks are actually being attracted to big schools of of uh, of especially Atlantic cod, and and I would just have a very hard time imagining that this shark would just swim around in a big school of fish, and wait for one of them to fall down on the ocean floor dead, 
and then go and pick it up. I definitely think they're capable of catching these fish. So I think they might be capable of one or two fast burst swims and then maybe getting a little bit closer and, and then maybe combined with some suction feeding or whatever, they, 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 are, they, they can ingest a fish or a seal or whatever. People always ask me if Greenland sharks are dangerous and I don't think they're dangerous. But I also clearly emphasize that with all the seals, like large, large intact seals are found inside the stomachs, I would never go swim nearby again if there is a whale carcass or something being butchered in in arctic waters i would not go swim right next to it because uh, i i i definitely imagine a greenland shark could be could could be there in in hunting mode and and i would not want to meet that and also just the same principle that you would apply really to kind of any wild animal yeah. to be honest is not to get in the way of it and it's it's yeah. main source yeah, exactly. of food exactly One thing that I really love about this species is just the fact that the Greenland shark's life is still shrouded in mystery and we don't have access to every single second of their lives and we don't know everything about it. But also at the same time, it does mean that we we need to know answers to these kind of questions to know how we can best protect them. And so what threats do Greenland sharks face? Well, the main uh, threat that they face is definitely bycatch in some certain areas. There is a lot of bycatch. We know that there, there is some fisheries where there is a lot of bycatch and that bycatch is not properly reported uh, in the official logbooks, at least in Greenland. We know that's the case. And I also expected many other uh, Arctic demersal fisheries would have bycatch of Greenland sharks. Um, so I think that is that is the main threat. But what we also know is, uh, uh, or at least that's the next investigation for the detective to uh, to dig into is you know Greenland sharks. They're called Greenland sharks, but they live all over the North Atlantic deep sea. Uh, and of course, they live especially in the Arctic. You encounter them, but you also encounter them in 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 the deep sea of the North and North Atlantic uh, anywhere basically. So. What is super interesting is I've touched a little bit upon it uh, previously, but uh, not said it directly, but it, it is very depending on which area that you are going to, what sizes of sharks that you are getting, and actually also what life stage that you are catching. And the adult females, for example, the adult females is much more restricted in their uh, distribution than subadult animals. They prefer much warmer waters. So I would say, Bycatch in the regions which is occupied by the adult females, that is a big concern. You know, they are they are super old and they are, they definitely do mature late. That is one of these warning lights blinking. Then there is this with the fecundity. Well, I think they are very fecund uh, or have a very high fecundity, which is not as big a warning light as if they had a low reproductive output per pregnancy. But then again, I think there are some areas where if you have bycatch in those areas, well, that's another warning light. So so, so for me, I think whatever conservational 
actions and and things that should be done to protect Greenland sharks. For me, it's very important that it's the right ones, that it's the right arguments that is being used and and the right efforts that is being made. And and I think to identify the areas where uh, the bycatch is highest for these important life stages in terms of like where the effective population is, the ones that are reproductively active, I think that is uh, very important. And that is also the greatest threat and I'm just I'm I'm watching the time very carefully because I'm aware that I've kept you for much longer than I said I would. No, um, yeah, no, yeah, no, it's no problem. But I only have one final question for you. So this this whole conversation has been so incredibly fascinating, and you know how you said you could talk about Greenland sharks all day, so could I. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like an endless like bounty of things that you can talk about with them. But um, my final question is, and you can pick. The, the species we've been talking about but it is if you could be any species of shark ray skate or chimera i had to add that because we've had so many deep sea experts on um in the world what would you be and why well well that's 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 an easy one because as i said in the beginning it's not that i am like I'm fascinated by all animals, but it's not that I have a particular thing for sharks. So so the only thing that I can, if I could choose, I would like to be a pregnant Greenland shark so I can, <laughs> so I can confirm my hypothesis of where they go and give birth to their hundreds of pups. Because uh, I don't think I will, I, I, I have a very strong hypothesis and, and, uh, and uh, I'm I'm quite sure I'm right, but I would just really like to be uh, 100% sure. Um, so that would be that would be uh, what I would want to be. I'd love to read that paper of just Greenland sharks, incredible fecundity source myself. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Personal observation. That's a that's a strong that's a strong citation. I think that's the first. Yeah. Well, actually. Have we had someone? Say, I think we've had one person say this before in some sort of way, and that they want to be that species because they could find out more about their research questions through it, which is such a such a brilliant and very uh, very scientific answer for that. Um, <laughs> but Julius, it has been an absolute joy to have you on, and thank you so so much for all of your time and your knowledge and being so open to talk about Greenland sharks and just fulfil yeah my welcome. nerdiest. You're welcome. Nidious needs. <laughs> yes, no. It was a it was a pleasure. It's always nice to. It's so often that you have to do it short, do it in five minutes or ten minutes presentation, and I'm like I hate that because you cannot present this animal in just ten minutes. You need several hours, and and I would say <laughs> that that there are several things that we haven't even talked about that uh, is also interesting. But uh, I think we have we 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 can save that for. Um, volume two if uh if that's if that's yeah required or yeah wanted. well you did tell me that you had papers in the pipeline so yeah you exactly. have a reason for a part exactly. two exactly so, there exactly. we go yeah. <laughs> all right <laughs> thanks so much Julius. okay thank you this podcast was brought to you by the save our seas foundation it was hosted and produced by me isla hodgson our amazing visuals are by jamie silver our beautiful logo is by Nicola Poulos and the wonderful jingle that you can hear right now is by David Knight. 
a enormous thank you to our Greenland shark detective, Dr. Julius Nielsen, for coming on the podcast and being so free with his time and so willing to talk about all the ins and outs of the Greenland shark's life. It was absolutely fascinating. As always, we will leave links to all of those papers that we mentioned in this episode and places to find Julius and find Julius's work in the show notes on the World of Sharks website. If you're interested, please do check them out. And thank you at home for listening. If you like this episode, please be sure to leave us a little rating and a review on your podcast apps. It means a lot to us and it helps more people to find us and more people to find out about how amazing Greenland sharks are and the fact that they have parasites living in their eyes and that they live centuries long. And who doesn't want that? And as always, if there is a topic you would like us to cover on the podcast, a question you want answered, or you just want to say hi, please feel free to get in touch. You can email isla at saveourseas.com or you can get find us on social media. We are at Save Our Seas Foundation on Instagram and TikTok and at Save Our Seas on Twitter. Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we will see you next time.